0: Welcome to the online sermons at King Street Church. Feel free to listen or watch online at kingstreetchurch.com. We're located at 162 East King Street in the heart of Chambersburg, PA, and would love to see you in person at one of our five Sunday services. We certainly hope you enjoy this morning's message. Well, good morning, everyone. And good morning to those folks who are here in the sanctuary as well as in the Baker Center and those online. We're glad that you guys could be here this morning. Um, we are uh, looking at the passage Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. So feel free uh, to open up your Bibles as well as maybe your, your smartphones to that, to that passage, Mark 14, uh, verses 1 through 11. Um, during this year, we have been walking through the Gospel of John as we focus on what it means to have life in his name. Life in the Name of Jesus, and we're actually going to take a little break uh, from that this week as Pastor Jody's on a well-deserved vacation, Uh, but we're going to switch on over to the Gospel of Mark and shoot back a few days of the life of Christ where we were in the, the Gospel of John to one of my favorite stories of all the Gospels, and so we're going to take a look at the story of Jesus' anointing and Bethany, so I invite you to follow along while I read. Now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime that you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The word of the Lord. I was born back in 1985, so i let you do the math on what my, my age is. Um, But uh, that makes me a a child of the the 1990s. And the early 1990s, they had uh, a lot of things that kind of defined that era. Some like fads, things that kids were into. Uh, Things like shows like the TGIF lineup of Full House and Boy Meets World and all those uh, type of shows that uh, were watched by lots and lots of kids. Um, Kids collected Beanie Babies. I don't know if some of you guys remember these things, uh, these Beanie Babies. And uh, they, as well as uh, parents, probably, hopefully, they were thought they'd be worth something someday. Well, they're not, at least none of the ones I collected uh, were worth anything. Um, also, kids played with these. These, they were called Tamagotchis. Uh, I'm gonna assume you guys probably remember this, but um, uh, these were electronic pets uh, that your job was to try to keep alive to prove to parents that you could keep a real animal alive. Um, I kept killing mine over and over and over again. So, there were a lot of things that defined what the early 90s was like, uh, but one thing in particular I want to talk about this morning, uh, to start off, is magic eye books. I don't know if some of you guys are familiar with these at all. Um, but magic eye books, they contain pictures that would look like something like this. Um, and I never knew what they were called beforehand until I looked into it, but they're called auto-stereograms, which allowed some people to see 3D images in the picture by focusing on these 2D patterns. So you would look at a picture like this, that's over here, and you could see a 3D picture in the background if you would look just right at it. So I was never never very good at this, so I had to look up a MagicEye.com on how you would actually do this. And it says, so you would take the image, you would hold the center of the printed image right up to your nose, like this. Again, pretend I'm doing that. Uh, it should be blurry, that makes sense, I guess. Uh, focus as though as you're looking through the image into the distance. I don't know what that means, but okay. Very slowly move the image away from your face until you see the hidden image, and once you perceive the hidden image in the depth, you can look around the whole entire image. And the longer that you look, the clearer the illusion becomes. Again, like I said, my brain, my eyes, they could never figure out these instructions when I was younger. But I did try it with this picture right here, and so you guys wanna see what's the 3D image behind it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how they got this picture back in 1993, but I can say that uh, Pastor Jody, he looks exactly the same today. So that's, that's pretty good right there. And in HD quality, too. Um, I did realize that, again, this picture is not 3D, so I did cheat a little bit. But anyways, but this picture really is not that, but it's a, a sailboat, which I still, after trying to print this off, I couldn't find a th- sailboat in there. Uh, but the thing about this picture and other magic eye pictures is, is that it takes intentionality to be able to see what's really going on in the picture. Uh, just by glancing at the picture, you don't see what really, what's really going on behind everything. You, you miss what it really is. It actually takes time, it takes energy, it takes intentionality to see what's, what's really going on behind this picture. You have to take that step. So in the story today, we're going to look at someone who really saw what was going on behind the scenes, contrasted with a group of people who just, who just missed it. Uh, but first, we're gonna, let, me, let me share just a little bit of the context of where we're at in the life of Christ, because I think that's so important for us to understand that when we go to any story in the gospel. Uh, chapter 14 is the longest chapter in the book of Mark. And in this chapter, Jesus, he's betrayed, he's arrested, and he's abandoned. And so the story we're looking at here uh, this morning uh, begins the countdown to Jesus' death. And this passage is constructed in what they call like a, a Markian sandwich, which is something that Mark tends to use a lot. The sandwich terms makes me sound very hungry, especially at this point right now in the morning. But uh, what the goal is uh, that we have a container, outer story, like two pieces of bread, which was the betrayal of Jesus in verses 1 and 2, as well as verses 10 and 11. And then we have an inner story right in the middle. Uh, the anointing of Jesus in this one is kind of like the contents of that sandwich. And the inner story may seem like something that's a, a different story, but yet it impacts the outer story. And we see that here as the chief priests and teachers, they, they get what they want because Judas agrees to betray Jesus because of his response to the woman in this story. So let's, let's dig into this passage today, and we're gonna dig into it by looking at three main uh, phrases uh, from this story. Uh, before we move into the application and that is first and foremost a woman came which is in verse three they rebuked her in verse five we're going to consider the reaction of some of the folks in this story and then in verse eight she has done what she could uh, which we will consider jesus's response to this story so first and foremost a woman came so jesus was in bethany at the home of simon leper having a meal and a woman came And Mark, he doesn't tell us who this person is, but John, who was there, uh, who also wrote in his gospel this story, he mentioned in chapter 12 that this is Mary, uh, sister of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. And Mark, he, he tells us that this woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. So both the jar and the contents would have been considered very costly. It wasn't the type of thing that a woman would have just been carrying around with them. Uh, we, see down, we see down in verse five that it could've cost around a year's worth of wages, a year's salary. Again, that's, that's a lot of money. But the monetary value behind the act that we see in the story was probably the smallest part of it all. You see, the alabaster jar uh, in this containment as well could've been a, in a prominent place within the home. It could've been something that their family maybe had for, for generations. Uh, and something that would have been passed down to her and it could have been something very special for her to use for one or two different reasons. Uh, one, it could have been used for a dowry for her and her marriage. Another, it could have been used to anoint her body to prepare for her burial uh, and death. So putting it in those terms, here is a woman that brought this item, this, this extravagant item, this, this p- possibly even priceless item that could have been used in her marriage or something used in the prospect of her death. And what does she do with it? She breaks it and pours it all over the head of Jesus. So what do we discover? We discover that in, Mark is describing a woman who's essentially pouring away her future on the head of Jesus. This woman is saying whatever hopes, whatever dreams, whatever plans, ambitions, and convictions I had, I'm bringing them here at the risk of it being disregarded, even disapproved, not being socially accepted. I'm gonna pour this all out onto jesus and thing is, she doesn't even just break over the top a little bit and just pour a little bit out she shatters the whole jar which is a gesture of just complete abandonment that this thing was this item was never going to be used again basically saying i'm giving it all over to you jesus some commentators said that this was kind of a, a rash decision on her part to break the jar which some people think that way, but uh, I, I disagree with that. But no matter what that you think in this story, she still brought this jar. It was premeditative. She knew what she was doing. Somewhere at some time, she decided this was going. She was going to anoint Jesus with it, and so she did it. And the impact of this moment was felt by all as she poured it all over his head. Which leads to the second phrase that we're going to look at this morning. Again, first a woman came, and then they rebuked her harshly. In verse 4, it says, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? And so, of course, when we read this, we see some of those present were saying these things, but who were the people that were saying this? We well, you know from the parallel passage in John 12 that uh, Judas was the one kind of leading the way in this. He was the one that mouthed this response. And that's something that we could easily look passed on because we know that this would be the disciple that was going to betray Jesus. We see that at the end of the story. This was one that who was greedy, who wanted money. Of course this guy would be upset. Of course this guy would be one that would make this decision. This would not be a surprise to any of us reading this story. But by focusing on Judas, we could really miss what is really going on here because we see in the book of Matthew, who also writes on this story, he says, he tells us that full truth on it. Is the, it was the disciples who also said this. It was a whole group of people who were the closest followers of Jesus. It wasn't just the one who was about to betray him. It was a group of people that were eventually going to lead the church after Jesus is gone. And Mark, they, they go on saying that these folks, they rebuked her The Greek word for the word rebuked, which is in verse 5 here, is actually we better translated the word snorted. It was pure anger. It was just extreme displeasure at what she was doing. And so this woman becomes an instance, becomes a focal point of angry glances and also comments from the people that were following after Jesus the closest. Why is this? Well, these disciples, they regard her actions as extravagant as wasteful, as a misuse of resources. Why was this perfume wasted like this? They just could not process this. They could not understand it. They even try to take on the high ground here in verse 5 by saying it could have been used for the poor. Again, it's a tough one to fight against, but their focus here is incorrect. It's a thin disguise of where their hearts are really at. Because You see, time and time again, the disciples, they show how much they fail to see what's going on around them. They don't understand it. The people who spend the last three years closely following Jesus, they, so they keep missing the point. To give another example of that, you, just, you can turn back just a few chapters in the book of Mark and, and of Mark 12. Uh, we see another woman in this story, the, the woman, the widow, and her, and her offering. Uh, let me read it for you in uh, verses 41 through 44 but feel free to turn there as well in your Bibles. So Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasure, treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I will tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything all she had to live on. Of course, Jesus in this story is telling the disciples that uh, it's not about the tiniest amount, it's about the sacrifice that she's giving. This widow has done something dramatic, so something extravagant. She has given her all, much like what we see in chapter 14 in The Woman from Bethany. Jesus is trying to get them to understand what's going on, but they continue to miss the point. As we see in the next chapter, in the first verse, and as they were, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. We go from Jesus challenging uh, them on what true sacrifice looks like, then them wanting, wanting to talk about the buildings right around them. Jesus' first response to them must have been like, are you missing this? Why, this wasn't what we were just talking about. I just shared with you about this woman's sacrifice and what it means to live for the kingdom, and you want to talk about buildings. It's almost, it's almost like leaving here today Like after a passion or any Sunday after an amazing sermon, the first response on the door is, man, I'm hungry. I wish Chick-fil-A was open, which is something I've never said, which is, okay, it's a lie, but uh, maybe just a few times. But anyways, the disciples here in the story, they just keep missing the point. Uh, they they want to say, you know, yes, yes, Jesus, I did hear what you had to say in this, but I would rather deal with anything else but besides what you had to share with us. They keep missing the point. So here in chapter 14, in the story we're looking at this morning, a woman comes along and exposes them for what they are, and they realize that, and these disciples realize that things are still just not clear to them. And the broken jar and the scent of the perfume in the story fights against their understanding what it really means for them to follow after God. So instead of this woman being celebrated by the disciples, she was rebuked. Because the disciples couldn't understand why she would give up her most treasured possession, especially in this manner. And it all has to do with her seeing what was going on and the disciples missing it. So what did they miss? Well, we'll see this here in this this last point here in this last section. And she did what she could. Starting with verse 6, Jesus chimes in with his response to the woman. He says, well, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them at any time that you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Again, a powerful response from Jesus. And within the statement, he shares with the disciples what they missed, what the woman caught. First, he fights against their, their thought process of it being wasteful and it should be given to the poor. He says, the poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time that you want. He's actually quoting the law here, the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 15:11. he says that in that passage they will never cease to be poor in the land. That's why time and time again, actually in the Old Testament law, uh, they made provision to help the poor over and over again. So Jesus is not disregarding the poor at all in what he has to say. He's saying that the poor you'll always have. That's something that for us, uh, caring for them is an ongoing opportunity and ongoing obligation. But what he's saying here in this particular situation at this day, he's saying that this is the right opportunity. It's the right moment. This is the the one-time opportunity to do this because you won't have me around for much longer. At the end of this chapter, he's arrested, and just a few days away, he's crucified. And so Jesus, he says, she has anointed my body beforehand for a burial, and that's what's significant. This act is directly related to his death. You know, the law demanded this, actually, that any good Jewish person would be buried, would not be buried without being anointed beforehand. So Jesus, he was going to be captured in the next couple of days. And the guardian was going to be taken away. He was going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified, and he was not going to have time to be anointed at all. So here in this unusual place of Simon the leper, the anointing for his burial takes place. Most commentaries would say that this woman did what she did without really knowing what she was doing, and Jesus, he had to explain it to her. Again, they they may be right. But my thought is, what if she did know what was going on, which I think is the truth. This woman saw what others missed. This woman who went to this house on this even did so in the awareness of the redemption that's going to happen here in, in the next few days in, in order to meet this need, in order to do what she could, in order to do what she was able to do. And Jesus calls what she does a beautiful thing, what she has done is generous. It's something that is self-forgetting. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. She did all she could for Jesus. And the disciples are left wondering to themselves, how do we miss this again? So my question for us this morning is, how did this woman see what was really going on and the disciples didn't? How did she know that Jesus needed this to be prepared for burial? How did she know this was going on? And why did the disciples call something wasteful that Jesus called beautiful. I believe wholeheartedly that this woman sees without a shadow of a doubt the cross that's lying heavily upon Jesus. As she understands what Jesus had said about his upcoming death in a way that disciples these did not. She knew that he is willing to die for the sins of the world as well as her sins as well. So in act of love and devotion, she breaks the jar and pours it all the fragrant perfume all over his head. She does have out of intense devotion to Jesus. She is overwhelmed with love, and she ultimately is pouring out her heart, praising Jesus, honoring him. She caught what was going on in the situation because when the grace of God takes a hold of a life, extravagant worship is the normal, the normal response to what Christ has done. She was willing to take her most prized possession and was willing to be possibly ridiculed to look down upon in order to show Jesus her love and devotion. She was willing to do the extravagant to show him love and honor. And she was willing to do something that just doesn't make sense in the practical sense and giving everything over to Jesus. And in the story, the disciples, they don't object to the perfume. What they object to is the extravagance of the way that she did this. This is ridiculous, they would say. This is wasteful. This is maybe even sinful. You know, the disciples, they want the mighty be put to good use. They want something that's practical, something that makes sense to them, something that fit into their box on how to serve God. And that's why they missed it. They want something practical. They could not get outside their box. And I think that's something for us that we need to learn here today as well. I believe that if we look at the two main characters of this story, you're not, not counting Jesus in this, but the woman and the disciples if you're anything like me, to be honest with you, we would probably relate more often, or to not, to the disciples. I believe that the biggest reason is that we buy into the lie that the practical of following God is, better than the, is greater than the extravagant. That we fall into the trap of what makes sense must be right. What is normal is good. What is extreme is bad. And we have fallen into the trap that moderation in the faith is greater than going all out. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, uh, said this about the disciples as well as the church even, even here today, even 100 years afterwards. He says, the spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders, which he's talking about the disciples, is unhappily only too, com- too common. Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's visible church. There is never lacking a generation of people who depreciate what they call extremes, in religion and are incessantly recommending with the term moderation in the service of Christ. But man devotes his time, money, and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ, then scarcely they find words to express their sense of his folly, that he is beside himself, that he is out of his mind, that he is a fanatic. In short, they regarded it as waste. J.C. Ryle, he's saying that people believe that giving your money, time, and resources over to practical things, that's fine. As long as it makes sense. Practical is greater than the extravagant. But if you say to people that you're going to give your sacrifice, your time, your resources, your life for Christ, people say you're crazy, much like the disciples did to this woman. So how do we get out of this mindset? How do we get out of this aspect of getting stuck in a box of practical over the extravagant? Well, one of the things that helps challenge me in this area is by studying the lives of missionaries. Uh, C.T. Studd is one such missionary uh, whose actually story kind of reminds me just a little bit of this woman in the story we're looking at today. He grew up in a rich family in England, and he had actually everything possible that he could possibly ever want, and money and resources and things that he could have. He had everything, but he made the decision to give it all up in order to move to Africa to to spread the gospel. He gave up his entire future, quote unquote, on that one, the life that he could have had in order to reach the people who needed to hear about Jesus. And he says this quote, which I believe the woman that we looked at today would say this very exact thing. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I could ever make for him could ever be too great. No sacrifice that I could ever make for him could ever be too great. And it's a prayer for us today as well. But of course, you know, we're not all called to be foreign missionaries. And a lot of times when we think of the extravagant in the faith, we tend to think of these type of examples, but we we miss out if that's all we focus on. We miss out on the extravagant that's right around us if that's all we focus on. Again, I could give lots of different examples of what that could look like, but one I want to share about today is something that we've already experienced, and that is being baptized. The taking that step of baptism—that's something that, in some degree, we've we've made a practical thing, but yet in, its, in nature, it's extravagant. It's not something that's practical at all. It's Something that's radical to be able to get up here in front of several hundred people and say that everyone, to everyone, say to everyone that I'm a follower of Jesus. It takes a lot of faith to share your story, all the pains and struggles and mistakes, and share how Jesus changed all that in front of the church family. Even to get totally immersed in the water, to go completely under and come back out, completely soaked, and also hoping that the pastor doesn't keep you down a little bit longer. Uh, that is a huge step. A huge thing to do in order to showcase, you know, Jesus, I'm willing to sacrifice everything to you. It just doesn't make sense in the practical sense. So taking a step to baptism is an extravagant step in following Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have yet to take the step, I want to encourage you to even start praying right now, asking God to help you to publicly declare that you are a follower of Jesus. You know, our next baptism service is going to be here in December, and so we'll have classes for that the first two weeks in that month. So start praying right now. This is, could be something that God could be challenging you to do, to take that extravagant step in your faith. Because an extravagant step, extravagant life, sorry, is greater than a practical one. So my question for all of us here today is, what can you do that is extravagant for Jesus this week? What can you do that just doesn't make sense in order to show your love and devotion to him? What can you do that steps out of your comfort zone, your practical box on what it means to follow after Jesus? Because God himself is extravagant, isn't he? God, he gives us the extravagant gift in the person of Jesus Christ, which is to some degree a ridiculous, wasteful gift. Why would God give away his perfect son to to sometimes very, a lot of times, ungrateful sinners like you and me? Jesus is worth far more than what we deserve. Jesus gives everything he has for us. He gives his whole life. And he wastes that life because it's out of God's act of divine love, his divine sacrifice, his divine extravagance for us. God's ways are out of the ordinary. They're out of the practical. Jesus has shown us total sacrifice. He breaks his body and pours out his blood to save you and to save me. And that ultimately is a beautiful thing. So let's let's do what we can for Jesus. Let me pray. Loving God, how lavishly you pour out the costly gift of your grace upon us. You are the giver of the most expensive gift to them all, and that is your grace to us. Help us to learn from you. Help us to not fall into the patterns, of the practical and the moderate, where we miss out on the opportunity to show you love and devotion in a way that is extravagant the same way that you have shown us. Help us to break away from our tendencies to play it safe and to be reserved. Help us to show you love extravagantly, even when it's costly, especially when it's costly, even when people don't understand us because you have given us the ultimate gift, your son. Help us to do what we can for you, God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We hope you enjoyed this morning's message. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to contact us using our online form on our website at kingstreetchurch.com or by calling us here at 717-264-4651 during our regular business hours. Be sure to stop by and see us in person at one of our five Sunday morning services. We look forward to seeing you there.